Good to see you today. I'm glad you're here. Let's take a look at our passage this morning in Acts chapter 4, verse 31. God answers prayer. That's what I want to talk about together with you this morning. God answers prayer. Before I talk about that, though, let me thank you for two Sundays ago, the uh, wonderful reception that was sort of a part of the whole thing, and I don't know who's responsible for it, but uh, thank you for the, all the cards that I received, um, the, the, the words uh, meant more to me than you can possibly imagine. I kind of joked around with some people when a former pastor was here 10 years, they gave him $10,000. Believe it or not, they gave him $10,000. I guess that was $1,000 for every year. And uh, I didn't get $10,000, just to relieve your, your mind. But uh, I got something more valuable than money. I got some cards with some words on them that expressed your heart to my heart as we have been together these last 10 years. And money comes and goes. But the impact that we have on each other's lives as we serve together is everlasting. And that's what I went to celebrate last week, just the impact that God had made on many, many lives as we've served together. And this, this has been an incredible 10 years. Thank you for allowing me to be here. It'll be, I think, 10 years next Sunday, I believe, when I preach actually my first sermon as your pastor. Because the first Sunday in August, I came in view of a call. And then I went back to my, home, my, my other church and resigned because, you know, these things are about two different churches. And I had to resign and give them two weeks notice. And I think it was the fourth week of August, I think, when I started my first uh, time in the, in the pulpit as, as your pastor. And it's, it's been a great privilege to be able to serve with you. Thank you for all the kind words. And, and um, I'm not sure all of you meant all of those words, but they were nice for you to say them anyway. <laughs> uh, let's start our study. God's answered prayer, Acts 4.31. You know, as you begin an introduction, you kind of want to find something that sort of kind of starts off a little bit humorous, but also something that sort of drives home the point of what you're going to talk about. And, and I came across this interesting story about a pastor who was in a, a very small, you know, uh, rural church, and uh, things were sort of loose, you know, sort of, so to speak. And, and he was a, a guy who liked to do impromptu things, and he liked to, you know, fly off the cuff a lot. And so he had uh, it established uh, some sort of a tradition where he would invite a child on the previous Sunday to bring an object, and he would use that object to introduce his message that Sunday. And so they had a week to, to, to try to trip up the pastor, to bring things, you know, that would sort of trick him up to see if on the fly he could, he could make a point and begin his sermon with this, this, this object unbeknownst to the pastor in advance that they would bring and bring it to the platform and on the spot he would have to make up something to say in regard to it. So every Sunday it became a challenge and on one particular Sunday little Bernie was asked to bring something and so when the pastor got up like I'm doing right now to introduce his, his topic and his sermon little Bernie came up and little Bernie handed the pastor a box and he opened the box and to his surprise and to his enjoyment there was a cell phone inside the box. And the reason why it was a good thing is because the pastor's subject that day was about prayer. How much better could it have gone than a cell phone when you're talking about praying to God and introducing your sermon about prayer? And so he picked up the phone and, and uh, he held it up and let everyone see what little Bernie had brought. It's a cell phone. And he said, you know, imagine with this cell phone we could reach the throne room of God and God were to have a phone there and he would then pick up the phone and we could speak. 
He said, let's say, for example, we had this phone could reach God on his throne and we could dial directly to God and we could ask him and pray about anything. He said, little Bernie, let me tell you something. As a pastor, I visit the hospital a lot and, and we have several people in the hospital today. So what number do you think I might call in order to call, the, call God on, on the throne and, and ask him about these people? He said, let's say, and he dialed a number, 316-555-121212, and nothing happened. And so he turned to the congregational Bernie and said, well, what number do you think I should call in order to reach God? Well, Bernie said, I know, Pastor, I know, Pastor. And he said, all right, Bernie, what number do you think I could call to reach God? And with all the confidence in the world, he said, well, Pastor, it's easy. All you have to do is 911. Dial 911. Have you ever dialed 911 to God? Have you? The sad reality is that that's how most of us pray. We don't pray during the week. We don't have a habit of praying day to day, moment by moment. But as soon as something tragic happens, all of a sudden we are a believer and a practicer of prayer and we fall on our knees, if not our faces, and we seek to all of a sudden connect with God in prayer and we are dialing a 911 call. When the reality is God has called all of us to pray without ceasing. That means there's never a time and never a moment in which we are not to be in an attitude, a mindset, a posture in our hearts, not always physically, of praying to God. But the reality is that most of us pray very little if we pray at all. Until there's all of a sudden some sort of 911 thing that we need to dial to God. We want to reach the throne room. We want God to answer immediately and we want him to answer exactly what we're asking him to do for us because our circumstance and our situation is of the nature in which without God fulfilling what we need him to do, we are not going to survive. Things are not going to turn out well. And so we often use prayer as a 911 call. Well, if there ever was a moment when there was a 911 call, it's the one in Acts chapter 4. And these people are in a circumstance, they are in a situation that is desperate. Not only is it dangerous, but the outcome could be deadly if they continued to obey God. And as they approach God, as we've studied two Sundays ago, they spend some time in praise and then they spend some time in prayer or petitioning God for some specific things that they believe are necessary for God to intervene in their circumstance. And if God doesn't intervene, well, they're not sure what the outcome is going to be. So I ask you this question, does God answer all prayer this morning? Does God answer every prayer? I would contend to you that he does answer every prayer. The first answer that he gives is the answer, no. Do you like no? Uh, you and I don't like no any more than, than our children, you know, those toddlers that, that want things and you tell them no. And how do they react and respond to God, uh, to their parents? They're screaming, demanding. Uh, if they're in a grocery store making fools of the parents and their parents are embarrassed by what is going on, sometimes God answers no. Sometimes God answers wait. And we don't like wait, do we? 
Because most of the time when we come to God with a 911 call, we need God to intervene, to, to interfere, to interject his power and his presence and his promise and his purpose and all of those things right now. And God says, eh, it's not my time right now. So I think I'll put this to a later time because that doesn't fulfill the purpose that I have in mind for you going through this, this thing. Sometimes he says, wait. Sometimes he says, no. And sometimes he says, Yes. And how incredibly wonderful it is when God says yes. But more importantly, not only when he says yes, but when he says yes immediately. God answers the prayers of these people in Acts 4.31 immediately. There is an immediate response to their praise and their prayer to God. And it's here that we learn that God answers prayer. I want to look at four things. Number one, God answers prayer, first of all, by defining his process. He answers prayer by defining his process. Now, a process is a step-by-step action that someone takes in order to accomplish a particular outcome. In other words, a process is something that starts with an outcome in mind. There is something that, that this individual or this person already has. They want, they, they want this to end. They want this result. They want this to happen. And so because of that, they been, begin to, to strategically implement actions and plans and procedures and, and things in order to accomplish that end, that means, that purpose, that objective, that thing that they want or desire. And God, I'm convinced, does that more often than not, if not every single time with our praying. God hears the prayers of these people, and we see in the text, in verse 31, it says, and when they had prayed, and when they had prayed. The word and is a critical word. It connects what has happened before to what is about to happen now. And is huge. God is about to act. And when. Don't overlook that. Don't pass that quickly and when. Because God doesn't act until after they pray. I am convinced that God often does not act unless we pray. And the reason why God is not acting is many times because we're not praying. Now, I'm not saying our prayers limit, hinder, or disrupt the plans or the activities of God, but I'm convinced that we don't become a recipient of the blessings that God wants to give us simply because we don't pray. It wasn't until after they had prayed that God then heard their prayer and answered this prayer and responded immediately. Prayer should be an immediate response to any and every need that we possibly can have. And after they had prayed, who's the they? The they talks about the commitment that they had in order to pray together. They came together in one mind, one heart, one purpose, one soul, and one prayer. There's something beautiful that happens when God's people come together and Together, they discern the mind, the purpose, the plan, and the will of God, and they together join, they unite together, and are committed to praying for the same objectives, the same goals, and the same outcome in this process that God wants to do. And they are one heart, one mind, one prayer, one people. And when they had prayed, notice they had prayed. This concept of their prayer is... Reminding of me is what we went to a couple of weeks ago in the last, when we, when we dissected the whole verses that led up to verse 31. 
in which they had prayed. In their prayer, they are literally trusting God because if you remember when they prayed, they didn't ask God to release them or to remove them from the circumstance of the situation. No, they didn't ask God to take out or to wipe out the enemy. They didn't ask God to to move them somewhere else where where it's not as hard or or it's not as difficult or the threats are not as great. The persecution is not what what they're experiencing. No, they instead, if you go to look, look with me to the passage that we read Several Sundays ago in Acts 4, 23. Let's just go there real quick. Now, I want to remind you here, and I know we've slept since then, and some of you may not have been here, but let's look at how they prayed. Notice in Acts 4, 31, not on the screen, but in your Bible, when they had released, then when they were released, if you remember, uh, Peter and John were released, and they went and reported to their friends what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said... Notice their praise, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, among the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel." Notice what they're praying. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They are so trusting God in their prayer. They are leaving the result. They are leaving the end result. They are leaving that which God has in purpose, that process. Remember, a process starts with the end in mind. God, they understand God has an end in mind through this threat. There's something that God is trying to accomplish. There's something that God is trying to do through this hardship, through this persecution, through this difficulty. And they said, Lord, you have an end in mind. There's a reason for this. Let me just stop here and say this. There's nothing that you're going through right now in which God doesn't have some purpose in which he is seeking to fulfill some process. Because through whatever you're going through, he has an end in mind. There's something he wants to accomplish. There's something that he wants to do. It may be in you. It may be in someone else. It may be in your circumstance. It may be in your family. It may be whatever it is. God has always an end in mind. He is not some accidental, coincidental, haphazard, fly-off-the-cuff, oops kind of God who just haphazardly says, oh, I didn't see that, or oh, I didn't know that was happening. He is a sovereign God who has the end in mind all the time and is orchestrating all of this process to carry us there. So whatever you're going through, stop fighting him and, and do what these people do. Trust the Lord with the outcome because God knows who you are and where you are. In verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon the threats, their threats, and grant to your servants, notice, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Continue to speak your word with all boldness. They don't have to ask God what his will is. They already know what his will is. I mean, he said it in Acts 1.8. Go therefore and make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Go and testify that Jesus is not dead. He has been raised from the dead, and you, through faith in him, can be forgiven of your sins and transformed, and you can be saved. They already had the commission from Jesus in Acts 1.8. They already had it. 
And here they already understand that as they are praying, they are praying for God's will to be done. God, you have a process in mind. You have a purpose in mind. You, you know what you want to do. They are, if you look at it, and, and I wish we had time and I don't, we don't have time. Maybe we'll come back at some other point. But they are praying the word of God in their prayer. The word of God. And if you don't know how to pray, Pray the word of God because there's nothing more powerful than to take the word of God and pray the word of God to God himself as you're praying. You say, well, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray. Well, Romans 8, let me just read it for you. Romans 8 verse 26 says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is present, and as he is present, he is leading them to pray the will of God. And the will of God is always discovered in the Word of God. And the Word of God always, in our praying, helps us define then the process that God has. God is going to give you the ultimate end in mind. This is what I want to accomplish, and you then pray that. God is going to always accomplish his particular special end in mind every time. The sad reality is I think sometimes when we think of prayer, we think of prayer as, as us coming to God and getting God to do what we want him to do. Come on, isn't it? Isn't that what we think praying is? Well, we go to God in prayer and say, God, I'm going to give you the prescription. It's like going into the doctor and saying, you know, my arm hurts. Let me tell you what you need to prescribe for me. Those are what we call addicts, Right? And some of us are selfish addicts in that we come to God knowing what the problem's in, knowing what the symptoms are, but describing how to correct the symptom and what God needs to do in order to correct it. And God just looks at us, and I think sometimes he just just shakes his head. And one of the reasons why God says no more often in our prayers is because our prayers are not praying then the process that God wants to accomplish and do as he's taking us to where he wants to take us. We're trying to go, we're praying for release and for relief, and we want out. We want God to change the circumstance. We want God to take out the enemy. We want God to deal with that person over there or change my spouse or whatever. And God said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that until I'm done with the process that I'm working in your life in order to take you where I have have predestined for you to be and the strain and the stress and the struggle and the heartache that we have too often in what we're going through is that comes as a result of us fighting God and if we would just trust God as these people who pray Lord don't take out my enemy don't relieve me don't release me I know what your will is now Lord just empower me to boldly move forward with you. That's that's a powerful prayer. And prayer becomes more about what it does in us as we follow him, more than what God does for us. Because these people are praying for boldness to fulfill the will of God. And what they don't know is persecution is going to intensify back in in a couple of chapters here to come. and, And people are going to die for their faith. And yet it's all a part of the process that God is going to use 
in the persecution of the church to scatter the gospel through the ends of the earth and to fulfill Acts 1.8. Why? Because God starts with an end in mind. And it's not all about little you and little me and little Emmanuel because we're just really a, a speck, a speck of sand in a sea filled with sand. Equally important, but we're not the final nor the complete picture. Number two, God answers prayer by defining his process. Number two, by displaying his presence. By displaying his presence. Look at this verse. It's an incredible verse. God is, is, is not absent from their circumstance. He's not absent from their situation. He is not unaware of what's going on. He's very much a part of it. He, he's, he's taking him through this, this process, because there's an end in mind. He's actively working all of these things, even in the threats and the persecutions and the arrest and the mock trial of the Sanhedrin and all of that. God's working here. And he's present. And he wants them to know, I am present with you. And he's going to give them an experience in which he is going to let them know through this experience that he's present with them. And I know we're Baptists and we don't like to talk about experience. Aren't we? Can I get an amen to that? Don't rely on your experiences. Rely on the book. Rely on, I get it. But how do we know God through his promises and through the book? By what? An experience. And God is going to give them an experience that he's going to say, hey people, I am sovereign, I am Lord, I am God on your and over your circumstance. He's saying to them, I got it. Don't worry about it. I got the steering wheel. I'm driving you in the direction that I have ultimately purposed for you. I got this. Don't worry about it. And he's going to give them experience. Notice, and as soon as they prayed, notice the place in which they were gathering together was shaken. The place in which they had gathered together was shaken. The place. What place? We don't know. There's no definition in regard to what place. He doesn't tell us the place because I'm convinced if we knew the exact location of this place, you know what we do? We build a shrine there. I've been to Jerusalem. I've been in what they call the so-called upper room where they believe that the disciples prayed and, and Pentecost took place. But I'm not convinced that was the true room. Who knows? But somebody would probably try to say, that's the place. I've stood where they say, Jesus stood on this very limestone that you're standing on. I go, on this limestone? Yeah, on this limestone. Well, you know what? Probably not. And while he doesn't identify the place, I want to remind you that he knows the place. We may not know where they are, but he knows where they are. He knows the location where they are. doesn't really matter for us where he is, but he knows. And just a side note here. You ever felt forgotten by God? He doesn't know where you are and what's happening. But here he says, I know who you are, I know where you are, and I know what you're going through. That's what he says to you today. I know who you are, I know what you're going through. I got this. He said, and the place in which they were gathered, they were gathered together. They were together Pastor Mike did a phenomenal exegesis of the passage that comes after this last week. Um, great job, Pastor Mike. I listened to the whole thing, didn't fall asleep once. 
If I listen to my own sermons, I fall asleep. So that was a good thing. But he did a great job about we're better together. And here these people are together in one place. I can't overestimate how togetherness, gathering together on a regular basis in a rhythm, helps us spiritually and strengthens us spiritually. But as we come together weekly, Every Sunday, gathering together. Why? Because we got into the world and it's a tough place and we come together and we gather. These people were together. They gathered together in this one place to experience the wonderful majesty and the presence of God. So they came together. And may I say this, Satan loves to divide because if he can divide us, he can devour us and he will win over us. Division does nothing but bring about the devil's activity and ends in a result in a defeated Christ follower, a defeated marriage, a defeated family, a defeated church. We must come together. And this place where they were gathered together. You know, I thought about this too. Was there anybody just happened not to be there at this occasion, do you think? Somebody said, you know, I think I'd go to Lake today or maybe I'd rather go to the movies or... Maybe I need to go do something else. And they had to come back and hear about what God did, and they did not experience what God did. They missed out because they didn't gather together as the habit of some. So this, so as the Bible says, and they gathered together, and notice it was shaken. This, this word means that it literally moved. It's not imaginary. It's not something they just concocted in their mind It's not some super hyper spiritual thing that, you know, they felt something. It actually happened. The the room was shaken. The word means to make, move back and forth. The room shook like an earthquake. The Spirit of God was manifesting His presence in a dynamic way. It was an experience, I'm convinced, they never forgot. God was saying to them immediately, preceding their prayer, I am with you. I have got this. Don't worry about it. I am sovereign. I am Lord over your circumstance and over your situation. No one. I mean, they prayed in their prayer. We, we, we saw it a while ago in their prayer. They talked about God being the Lord. It says, in verse 24, verse 4, it says, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They, in their prayer, they were recognizing the sovereignty of God. And as they are reminding themselves, not God, God doesn't need, need to be reminded that he's sovereign. He already knows that. But in their prayer, they are joining God and declaring that he is sovereign. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God shows up and he says, yes, as you believe, I am sovereign over your circumstance. And I am sovereign over your situation. I am sovereign over the enemy. I am sovereign over mankind. Nothing can thwart the purposes that I have intended through the ultimate outcome that I have for you in this. I've got it. In the 10 years that I've been here, there have been times when I have wondered, do you have it? Um, Every summer, the finances are usually more than the income. People travel, 
And whatever reason people use what they're going to give to God for vacation, or maybe they forget to give their tithe and their offer, I don't know, whatever. But some are used to the giving is down, the attendance is down, and, and it, it, you spend more than you receive. You, you kind of get a little bit more in the spring than you spend. In the summer, you spend more than you receive. And in the fall, it kind of picks back up and you sort of balance things out. And uh, we were in a finance committee meeting just last month. And we are $40,000 in expenses more than receipts for the end of the year so far. And this is not to try to get you to give more money. Uh, we've already had the offering, so relax. Okay? And so every year, <laughs> can I get a witness, Roseanne? Where's Roseanne? Is she here? Yes, is this true, Roseanne? Every year, I have to remind the new people on the, on, the, on the finance committee, God will provide. About this time every year, God will provide. How do I know he will provide? He's done it for the last 10 years. This doesn't make sense, people. We had a $4.4 million debt with 600 people in attendance. Our offerings were down. We had released, I don't know, 14, 16 people from staff. I mean, we were in dire straits, believe it or not, and the money was not coming in. The, the building payment by itself was $50,000 a month. I mean, $46,000 a month, do the math. That's almost $500,000 a year just on this building alone, not to mention the debt we had on the Family Life Center we didn't pay off on this building. I mean, it was, it was, it was nuts. If I had known this 10 years ago, no wonder people were telling me I was crazy for coming here. I didn't realize, the, Brother Andy, you lied to me. Yeah, you said we were doing fine. No, I'm just kidding, you didn't say that. I didn't know what kind of financial shape we were in. And guess what happened last week? We got a check for $158,000 that covered more than the $40,000 and has given us a little bit. Now, that doesn't mean you, don't, you have to stop giving. <laughs> There's one year I, I stood up here about this time one year and I said, we're ahead of receipts and expenses and I don't know what happened. The bucket fell out and you decided we didn't need the money. I don't believe that you say give, give, give because a fire is happening and because things are about to... We're, I don't think you motivate people because of need. You motivate People are motivated because of their love for Christ and their desire to give, not because of need. And if I love him, I'm going to give... So this is not about giving, but it's about every year about this time of the year, God always, for whatever reason, in some unplanned, unobscure, unknown way, this person gave us $158,000, and there's another $158,000 coming at some point in the future. We already know that. How does God do that? That's an experience. I have experienced God's faithfulness over and over and over again. There have been people who left here and said, if I leave, you won't be able to turn the lights on. Well, the lights are on. And I'm cool in here. And we're down to almost a million dollar debt. And God somehow, someway has used his people through your faithfulness every year to see that we as a church are continuing to spread, to communicate, and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in our city and around the world. And we have helped plant almost 10 churches as a result of this, in this process. God has been faithful. 
How do I know that? By experience. I know what his word says. And my faith is anchored on his word. But I know that God keeps his word. Why? Because I have experienced it. And each and every time when I trust him, he comes through. Not always like I think or like I plan or like I want. But I know that his presence is here because he continues to reveal himself to us in our circumstances situation and says, I'm still here. And he will do that for you. Number three, God answers prayer for defining the process, displaying the presence, and then delivering his power. Wow, I got eight minutes before 12 o'clock. All right, what happened to time, Pastor Mike? You preached an hour last week, so I got an hour, right? I'm just kidding. (laughs) these believers are going to need strength not physical strength but spiritual strength by the way I preached in almost an hour myself so just gonna leave you off the hook because I know at some point you'll be back up here and I'll have to eat my words but anyway I got your back brother yeah and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit And is a big word here. God's not done. Not only did he shake the place to remind them that he is present in their circumstances and situation through this experience, not just from the word, but by experiencing the present reality of the Holy Spirit, he now and he says, there's more to come. You're going to need more than just faith and knowing that I am with you in this circumstance situation. You're going to need extraordinary, supernatural strength that's going to come from within, not from yourself, but from someone greater than you, and that person is the Holy Spirit. Notice, and they were all filled. They were all. This is not some special dispensation only for the pastor or for the apostles. It's for all of them. All of them who were, in there, who were gathered together in their room, all of them received the same filling. And the word filling means to be supplied with plenty. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, with the person of the Holy Spirit. Didn't mean that they didn't have him. They already had him because they received him, many of them, at Pentecost. Don't mistake this. They already had received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Some of these who were there, more than likely, received the Holy Spirit upon their conversion experience. So they already had received the Holy Spirit, but they need a fresh filling of the Spirit of God in order for the Spirit of God to rise up with them to be able to fulfill the obedience and the faithfulness that they were determined to give to God. In Acts 1.8, they were determined. They were not going to let the enemy stop them from obeying God. They were going to proceed in faith, and they asked for boldness. And it's not some inner boldness. It's not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps or mustered up the strength in and of yourself or go pump some iron so that you can duke it out with the enemy. It's not that kind of thing. It's something that has to come from within, not within yourself, but within through the Holy Spirit of God as he fills them with a freshness of the fullness of the Spirit of God. Interesting in, in, uh, in Acts 2 when Pentecost took place. We've already studied this, but when the day of Pentecost arrived in Acts 2, 1, And they were all together in one place that suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind. And I filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire 
appeared to them and rested on each one of them, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, they had received the Holy Spirit through the tongues of fire laying on them. All of them received the same flame. That means they received the Spirit of God that was promised through Isaiah and Ezekiel. But not only did they receive him, they were filled with the Spirit. You receive him at salvation, but I think there is a special understanding that there are times in our lives where we need a special, fresh filling from the Spirit of God to engage in the process of being obedient and carrying out that which God has called us to do. Acts 6, 8, 19, just write it down, let me read it to you. I mean, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit resides in you if you are a Christ follower. I spoke to someone who's here today, yesterday, about placing their faith and trust in Jesus. And this person prayed to receive Christ as their Savior. And we talked about, at that moment, the Spirit of God now builds a permanent residence in our hearts. And I always say, well, now where's the Spirit of God? He's in me. And upon that confession of faith, he builds a permanent dwelling place, a temple inside of you. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, for we are the temple, the temple of the living God. These bodies are more than just physical and flesh. They are temples of the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 5.18 says that we are to be filled with the Spirit. That is a command, not an option. And we're going to talk about this in the Sundays to come, about the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get real charismatic here. But the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that needs to happen on a continual basis. And so we need to be filled with the Spirit in order to engage the culture that we're in, especially in the culture of hate and anger and bitterness today. Because I'm convinced that only the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power unto salvation can transform lives and make people who are prejudiced, non-prejudiced. He can turn hate into love. The answer isn't cultural. It's not political. It's not government. The answer is the gospel of Jesus. Because I believe, as I said on my Facebook, that you can't call yourself a Christian and hate someone or despise someone because of the color of their skin. That's not Jesus. And if you call yourself a Christian today and you're prejudiced, you need to repent. It's only the Holy Spirit of God that can empower us to do what God has called us to do. In and of myself and the flesh, the culture around me, it propagates hate and prejudice and all these stupid things. And even prejudice against prejudice and all those things. We have to be really careful. But lastly, as I close, I got one minute deploying his people. This will be a quick point, but an important point. How does God answer prayer? How does God answer prayer? Huh? Though the answer is on the screen. It's P-E-O-P-L-E. People. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? As, as, as wimpy and whiny and weak and unfaithful and sometimes carnal and fleshly and selfish and human and moody, God somehow in his sovereignty 
places his spirit in us and says, I'm going to use the people I created and put in the garden to accomplish my will. I know they're imperfect. I know they're human. I know they have good days and bad days. I know some days I don't want to get out of bed. But these are the people by which I have chosen to use in order to fulfill and to be the answer to prayer. Notice he said, and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And God's not finished yet. Notice the room shook. He's present. The people there were filled with the Holy Spirit, but there's still more to come. Because, you see, a filling of the Holy Spirit of God does not mean that I walk out and just enjoy the filling for myself. The filling was given for a specific purpose, as was the Spirit of God. Because he said, I'm going to fill you with my Spirit. Why? So I can send you out into a lost world and declare that Jesus Christ is not dead. He is risen from the dead, and you are to testify that through faith in Jesus, you can be saved from your sin. That's the only purpose that we have. There's no other objective. And they continued. They didn't stop obeying God while they were praying. They continued to to testify of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But after all this, they went out and they continued proclaiming the gospel. But notice it says, with boldness, with power, with power. So as we close, he's deploying his people, filled with his spirit, who understands that he has an ultimate objective that he wants to accomplish. As he manifests these wonderful experiences that continue to remind us that he's in control. We've been praying for some time now that God would fill these seats. Right? Haven't we? Come on, church. How's God going to answer that prayer? Come on, how's he going to answer that prayer? Through people. Who are those people? Us. We're the answer to our own prayer. We can't just say, Lord, here's my four seats, here's my four chairs. Fill this place with people and then just go home and do absolutely nothing about it. You may be praying for someone to come to faith in Christ. They don't know Jesus. And you're asking God to save them. How are they going to get saved unless you are the answer to the prayer that you are praying yourself? Maybe you are the answer to that prayer. God is going to answer your prayer through you. Why? Because he answers it through his people. Because we are the people and the vessels and the instruments and the tools and the instruments that God uses to be the answer to the prayers that are being lifted up. Because in the sovereign divine plan of God, for whatever reason, I don't understand it. He could have chosen much better vessels than me, and I know better than you, to be answers to the prayers and to the great commission of the gospel.
Sing it all my days. I will sing, Lord, your.